here's how you put it. I stopped basing my sexual identity on my feelings, and I started uh, basing my identity on my body. After all, feelings can change, and often do, but my body doesn't. It's a, you know, it's an empirical fact that does not change. And he said, I decided, and here's how he put it, I decided to accept my body as a good gift from God. And that's really the worldview issue at the heart of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material forces, in which case our body has no intrinsic dignity or value, just kicked up out of the slime by random forces? Or do we live in a cosmos created by a loving creator, in which case, our bodies are intrinsically good. They're a good gift from God. And I'm on the roll. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with professor, author, and apologist, Nancy Piercy. What does the body have to do with our faith? How does our view of the body affect many of the issues that we face in our society today? Subjects such as sexual identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism. How about such things as eating disorders and arthritis? How do we share what God says about our bodies in a positive way? These are just some of the questions that Nancy and I discuss. If you haven't heard our first conversation, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it lays out the groundwork for what we're talking about today. And much of our discussion centers around her book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. It is a phenomenal book. It's filled with insights, biblical truth. She has some pop culture references to break it up a little bit. And then the part that I love the most is an example after example of people that have been changed by the grace of God. Nancy is a former agnostic, but now she is an apologist and has defended the faith and spoken at such universities as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. She was highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity Today and was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. As an apologist, Nancy shows us how to defend our faith in our postmodern world. And one of the best approaches is by getting inside antithetical worldviews to the gospel by showing the weaknesses and inconsistencies within themselves. It is so important to get people to see how they view reality and and have themselves ask themselves the question, does their view of the world accurately and adequately explain reality? We also discuss the importance of language, and she gives me a quick course in using terms properly, and why we must be careful in the language we use, because our language often frames the discussion in the perspective that people often have. From there, we discuss our bodies and how such subjects as transgenderism, homosexuality, eating disorders, and other ailments are often approached by separating what one feels from the body and its dictates. 
It's actually the biblical worldview that places a high priority on the body and offers a corrective to the modern secular notion of the body, but something that many churches have often missed the importance of and skip over, causing great confusion in the process. One of the most enjoyable pieces of Nancy's book in our conversation was example after example of people being changed by Christ. But it would be wrong to think that our conversation was just about getting someone to change their position on the body. That's not what this is about. Rather, it's a proper understanding of the body. And through that, that we hope that a person comes to an encounter with the risen Christ. Ultimately, this conversation is about hope and truth. True hope cannot be separated from truth. And for a person to have real hope, they first must understand what is true. I hope that this part of the conversation helps equip you to know how to have conversations with your family, friends, colleagues, and classmates so that they may step into truth and have true hope. Happy listening. Since I became a Christian through apologetics, of course, I'm very big on, on actually using apologetics in evangelism, mm-hmm. you know, addressing the culture, addressing its beliefs, and, and you know, finding ways to help people see that, that they're wrong, that those, those beliefs are inadequate, that they're not good enough. They're not adequate to describe reality as we know it. And that is um, what Schaefer did so, what Schaefer did so well was he got inside of other uh, worldviews, belief systems, and showed from within why they were not adequate to explain reality. And just as an example, um, you know, if you're a moral relativist, mm-hmm. um, you can show pretty quickly with most people that they don't actually live by their own moral relativism. They all mm. do have moral convictions. There are things that they think are absolutely, you know, truly wrong. Um, you know, all you have to ask them is, is there one thing you can think of that you think is really wrong? <laughs> and they will think of them very quickly. Mm. So you, that's a way of sort of, instead of saying, you know, well, the Bible says... <laughs> you actually got inside their own relativism and showed that it doesn't work. It doesn't match their own behavior. And so mm. that's a very simple example, but that's essentially what um, Schaefer did is show that, show that you can't just preach Christianity at people. You have to first help them to see that their own worldview is inadequate. And, and that's really how, I, you know, that's how Labrie, that's what I learned at Labrie. They, they quickly showed me that my, my the isms, the various isms mm. that I was holding you know, we're not adequate. You have to show that before they're willing to consider an alternative. You know, otherwise, it, you know, the traditional evangelistic method was trying to show people their need in terms of sin and conviction. Mm. But you can also show need by showing them that their own worldview doesn't doesn't answer the questions of reality. You know, mm. that, own, that they themselves cannot live within their own worldview, so that own, their own worldview cannot be uh, an adequate description of reality. So I, I'm really big on, on doing apologetics as a way of reaching out to people and helping them to see that their own worldview uh, doesn't work, even for themselves. Especially with these moral issues that I address in Love Thy Body, the secular views are all completely postmodern. And mm. that's one reason that Christians have had a hard time dealing with them, because we're not as familiar with postmodernism. Most of our apologetics is geared toward the modern mind. Okay, so they're, they're addressing materialism and scientism mm-hmm. and naturalism uh, and even empiricism. Mm-hmm. Um, 
most of our apologetics is is geared toward that form. That's that's modernity. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the lower story. Those are the isms that are trying to be scientific. They all they all were initially inspired, and if you look at them his, historically, they were all initially inspired by the scientific revolution, and they all said, okay, this is science gives us the ultimate truth. Let's you know let's figure out what what are the philosophical implications of that. You know, so mm-hmm. you can see that with materialism, naturalism. Um, but they're obviously trying to say, you know, the material world is all that is that exists, and we know it through science. Mm. And most of our apologetics has dealt just with the lower story, with those isms. But we've ignored the upper story. The upper story has isms like, uh, well, I mentioned idealism a moment ago, philosophical idealism, which was say, I, you know, everything's in your mind, existentialism. Mm. And now postmodernism. These are all in the upper story, um, and there's there's a label for these, by the way. The, the lower story is called the analytic tradition. You, if you've taken philosophy, you might know these: analytic tradition and the continental tradition. Mm. And most of our f- apologists have not been dealing with the um, continental tradition, but it is what has permeated English, the humanities, mm-hmm. political science. The social sciences, you know, the the university today is kind of split between the uh, the natural sciences, which is still stuck in modernity, and that's important because science is still very influential in our lives today. So they're stuck in modernity, but the other half of the campus, the humanities and the social sciences, are completely taken over by postmodernism. So well, when you talked about, um, you know, who, who, how do we craft our message? the Christian message for different audiences, that split is one of the most important splits that we need to address. We have to show that Christian truth is rich enough and multidimensional enough that it can uh, answer questions from, you know, from any of these perspectives. Mm. And I think you've hit what I was trying to say in, in many ways is just that secularism is there, but you're saying be within that culture and answer and and, and make the, the culture face its own, like a mirror, putting a mirror up to show that it's not sustainable for a cognitive framework in order to live. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. Um, if you, if you want to pursue this, this, this is the whole um, theme of my book, Finding Truth, by okay. the way, is... Um, Show, taking secular ideas and show how they collapse from within. And I was, I, I researched this book for a long time because I wanted to find secular people admitting it. <laughs> mm. And I did. I found several people. This is, this was astonishing. Um, several people who said they were scientists and philosophers and, and well-known ones, you know, uh, prominent people um, who basically said, I'm a, I'm a materialist. I believe that humans are basically complex biochemical machines but does anyone really live like a machine? I'll, I'll give you mm. one or two examples. Um, um, Marvin Minsky, who um, used to be at MIT. I think he's retired now, but anyway, he, MIT. So, you know, not a fringe character. Um, he, he wrote a book called, uh, he wrote a book in which he argued, um, he was most famous for his phrase, the, the, the human brain is just a three-pound computer made of meat. Mm. And he said, you know, we're just basically biochemical machines. There's no such thing. Because we're computers, we don't have free will. You know, my computers don't have free will, and so neither do we. And then he says, 
um, but we we cannot give that concept of we cannot give up the concept of free will because all of our understandings of the mental world is based on the notion of free will. And so, and here's his direct quote: "We cannot ever give this up. This concept, we cannot ever give it up, even though we know it's false." Mm. In other words, according to his materialistic worldview, there is no free will. There is no mental life. You know, there's just neurons firing in the brain. But we can't give it up in practice, even though we know it's false. And this is an incredible cognitive dissonance. Mm. And um, in, in, my, in my book, Finding Truth, I show that every secular, well, and non-Christian, but I deal mostly with secular worldviews, um, have have lead to cognitive dissonance. And that's what you can use in evangelism, that you can help them to see that their own worldview doesn't fit the facts. Here's the, here's the example that my students always remember the most. Um, this is Rodney Brooks, also MIT. Um, he was the head of the artificial intelligence lab there. And he wrote a book called Flesh and Machines. And in that book, he... You know, once again, he says, uh, we're just biochemical machines, we're robots. And by the way, when they say no free will, I used to think, well, that's just one feature of human beings. You know, why do, you know, it, there's a lot of other ones. But it turns out that they talk, they talk a lot about free will because it's the foundation of all the other human, you know, distinctively human features. Like, think what you couldn't do if you didn't have free will. You couldn't love, right? Because robots don't love. You couldn't do any sort of creativity or arts. Um, what else? You you couldn't even think rationally because you'd be programmed to think a certain way, so it wouldn't be a rational choice. And so free will has become sort of the the, the uh, touchstone for all of these distinctively human traits. So here's here's Roddy Brooks saying we don't have free will; we're just machines. And then he says. I know most people, it's hard to see people as just machines. But when I look at my children, when I force myself, I can see that they are machines. And then he says, is that how I treat them? Of course not. They have my unconditional love, which he then says is totally, is totally irrational within my worldview. And so you wonder, how does he fit these two together then? He ends the paragraph by saying he doesn't even try. He says, I maintain two sets of contradictory beliefs. Mm. So I found several examples like that of people saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a naturalist, I'm a materialist. But you know what? I can't actually live with my beliefs. I can't, I can't function on the basis of my own worldview. So that... <laughs> That's wonderful examples that we can use in evangelism as we learn then to, from these examples, we can learn how to do it with other worldviews as well, of course. We can help people see, you know, pinpoint where the cognitive dissonance is, pinpoint where they cannot live within their own worldview. And then that shows them that their own worldview isn't big enough. It's not big enough to encounter even their own experience. We don't have to tell them, be open to the Christian worldview, be open to the existence of God. We can say, Look at your own experience. Your worldview doesn't even explain your own experience of reality. And so that is very powerful. It is extremely powerful. And is that really what you hope to accomplish with the book as you're addressing these issues? Helping people to see that 
their worldview is not compatible. And actually the biblical worldview brings, you said cognitive dissonance, but it's the opposite way. It's coherence. Um, is that what you hope to accomplish by helping people see that? And you provide story after story of people that were changed or they came out of homosexuality. They, they, they actually leave the gender that they, they chose to be, and they go back to the gender that they were assigned at birth. I mean, you even bring in intersex, you hit so many different things, but is that what you hope to do is to show that just the, the harmony of the Christian worldview and where there's hope and peace in the middle of all that? Yes, let me pause by saying I would not say assigned at birth. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, who controls the language, you know, controls the outcome. That's right. You're right, you're right. <laughs> you know, so observed, what would you say? What would you say? Observed at birth. <laughs> observed <laughs> at birth. You know, it's a scientific fact that is observed. And by the way, it's usually before birth. Most people have an ultrasound. Right. <laughs> but okay. yeah, it's a scientific fact that's actually observed. Um, yeah, well, okay. in Love Thy Body... Um, it's a little bit a different form of apologetics because people are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're mm-hmm. asking, why are Christians such bigots? Yes, yes. So in Love a Body, my main goal is to show that the Christian ethic actually is very life-affirming and has a high view of the body and gives value and dignity to the body much more than the secular view does. And since you mentioned stories, let me give you one or two um, mm. There's a young woman named Jean who lived as a lesbian for many years and became a Christian and, uh, and, and now is married and has two children. And here's how she expressed the change. She said, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. Mm. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Mm. So a lot of what I do in Love Their Body is teach Christians how to use that positive language, trusting God, um, honor my body, living in accord with the creator's design, respecting my biological sex, live in harmony with my body, with mm-hmm. who I am. I'm, I, I think for Christians, we have to start just by changing our language so that we're focusing mm-hmm. on the positive. And the, uh, the other story that really brings this out well is um, Sean, Sean Doherty, who um, mm-hmm. was a uh, exclusively attracted to other men growing up. And what's interesting about his story is that he grew up in a, quote, gay-affirming family and attended Mm. a, quote, gay-affirming church. So he didn't think there was anything wrong with homosexuality. He was not driven by shame or guilt. You know, most people think that homosexuals, you know, have shame and guilt piled on them. That wasn't the case in his, uh, in his, for him. Today he's uh, married and has three kids. By the way, married to a woman, You have to Mm. say that these days. Mm -hmm. Um, So what changed for him? He said, um, I came, here's how he put it. I stopped basing my sexual identity on my feelings. And I started uh, basing my identity on my body. After all, Mm. feelings can change and often do. But my body doesn't. It's a, you know, it's an empirical fact that does not change. And he said, I decided, and here's how he put it. I decided to accept my body as a good gift from God. Mm. And that's really the worldview issue at the heart of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material forces, in which case our body has no intrinsic dignity or value, just kicked up out of the slime by random forces? Or do we live in a cosmos created by a loving creator, 
in which case our bodies are intrinsically good. They're good gifts from God. And see, see that positive language? We want to persuade people that their body is a good gift and that they should be honoring their own bodies. That's the message that will reach home. You know, we, it's not, we're known for having a ne- negative message, right? Christians are known for saying it's wrong, it's a sin, it's against the Bible, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. That's kind mm. of what we're known for. And so Love Their Body is re- retraining people to say, you are valuable in God's sight, and your body is a good gift from God, and we, wa- we are calling you to live in harmony with your body, to respect your biological sex. It's a, it's a completely different message. Mm. What, what do you hope to accomplish with the book? I mean, really bring home, like, what's the best case scenario? You say, God, I would be so honored if you did this with your book. Bring people to God. Bring people to God. You know, um, mm. it's the, mo- the point is not to get you to change your sexuality. <laughs> you know, that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to help people to say, oh, this Christian worldview is really attractive. It has a much higher view of the body. I'll tell you what. Some people have misunderstood. Uh, without naming names, there was a Christian philosopher who reviewed the book. He hadn't actually read it. He just read some notes from his producer. Mm. <laughs> so we'll, get, we'll, we'll give him a break. But, but, uh, <laughs> but he said, you know, Nancy's wrong uh, when she says that materialism has a lower view of the body. Because materialists think the body is all that exists, the physical world, right, is all that exists. And so they have actually a, a, a too exalted view of the body. To which I say, no, if you think the body is a product of mindless, purposeless, random forces, you do not have a high view of the body. It's just because you think it's all that exists doesn't mean you have a high view of it. It's Christianity that has a high view of the body. And so my goal ultimately is to draw people into seeing the beauty of the Christian worldview and being drawn ultimately to, um, you know, to a relationship with God. So it's, it's ultimately about evangelism. You know, it, ultimately, I, I have to make this point sometimes with my Christian friends. Like, you know, this, especially if a family member is having a problem with transgenderism or sexual identity, you know, they're so focused on, on, on changing their views on the sexual issues. And I have to say, okay, what's our ultimate goal here? You know, the ultimate goal is to win people's hearts to God. Mm. Mm, That's a good word. What do you see as the biggest challenges for doing that with the younger generation? I mean, you're a professor, you're teaching Christian young people all the time, and you're encountering worldviews. What do you see as the biggest challenge in sharing this with them today? Oh, mostly that they've... um, They've been so indoctrinated by the media. I, I had one student say, well, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, but. <laughs> and then she just mm. spouted all the stuff she'd gotten from the secular media word for word. You know, it's like they've been programmed. <laughs> so mm. sometimes it's hard to get a foot in the door. You know, they, they she finally listened to me <laughs> to some degree, mm. but um, just here they're so close to the Christian, even, like I said, this Christian woman, uh, young woman, student, um, was so close to the Christian view because she had only heard it presented in a very negative way. And it was very hard for her to even open her mind to the idea that there's a different way to, there's a different way to express the Christian ethic than the 
than the way she'd always heard it. Um, however, once they do hear it, and, and of course not all my students are that way, um, many of them are, are very, really seeking, it's a Christian university, so they're seeking to be biblical in their view. Um, and, and, but even for them, I have to tell you, they say, I just never heard it presented this way. Um, I, and I, I have to tell you, um, people are using, for, for using the book for things other than um, the sexual issues. One of my graduate students had a teenage daughter who was, had a, a very severe eating disorder. She'd had to be hospitalized even. Mm. And she was taking her 13-year-old daughter through Love Thy Body, sentence by sentence, <laughs> to help mm. her to realize that God wants her to value her body. And she said, mm. and she said to me, I, I just, I, I wasn't helping her because I didn't have a high view of the body. I had, here's how one of my students put it. Growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. Mm. And when I say that, I, I use that in my lectures now, and invariably the whole audience says, uh-huh, <laughs> yep, that's yeah. pretty much the message we picked up too. And so, uh, so this mother found out that she'd been communicating that to her daughter and that she was not communicating mm. to her daughter that she should value her body as a good gift from God. So, um, so she was using it for an eating disorder. Other, has, other people have contacted me and uh, a woman who had been sexually abused and who therefore, you know, rejected her body, you know, felt alienated mm. from her body. She was using Love Thy Body, uh, a woman who was obese and had difficulty with her body image. Um, and even a woman with rheumatoid arthritis contacted me mm. and she said, I had, I was, I was reconciling myself to my, you know, um, this condition, this medical condition by saying, well, I am not my body. Mm. And she said, oh, I read your book. <laughs> and I realized, um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but um, in my book, I give the example of a transsexual, uh, a mm -hmm. man, male to female transsexual, who was raising money on uh, 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 fundraising on the Kickstarter. She was raising money for a documentary, which was titled, I Am Not My Body. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> remember that? So, so. So my friend with rheumatoid arthritis realized that she had basically picked up the secular view that was being used by transsexuals to alienate themselves, to separate themselves from their body. Here's, here's one more thing um, that I do with, with Christians. I help them to realize that they have lost their own heritage. That mm. If you go back to the early church, uh, they faced the same denigration of the physical world that we face, but for very different reasons. The early church faced uh, isms like uh, Gnosticism. Right? Some of the New mm -hmm. Testament is actually written against Gnosticism. Gnosticism, Platonism, Manichaeism. Augustine had, was a Manichae for a while. Uh, and all of these isms denigrated the material world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction. And... Uh, Gnosticism even taught that there were several level, several different levels of deities, of gods, and that it was the lowest mm -hmm. level deity, an evil god, who had created this world because no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. Um, and that goal of salvation was to escape from the physical world and reascend up into the ether, you know, into the non-material mm -hmm. realm. In this context... 
Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary because it said, uh, for starters, that the world was not created by an evil God. It was created by the supreme God, who is a good God. And therefore, his handiwork is good. And that's not obliterated by the fall. The fall is like uh, taking a beautiful masterpiece and scribbling some magic marker on it. But you can still see the beauty mm -hmm. shining through. And that's what we have to insist with that, that the Christian worldview says you can still see the beauty of God's handiwork and the goodness of God's handiwork shining through. But was, was the greatest scandal at the time, historically, was the doctrine of the incarnation. The idea that mm -hmm. the that supreme deity had actually entered into the material world and taken on a physical body. Um, the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And then when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, mm -hmm. he did escape the physical realm as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He came back in a yeah. physical body. To the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. <laughs> this was regress. Mm. Um, what they said at the time, in fact, was who would want to come back to the realm of the body? So, um, so the bodily resurrection uh, affirms the, the dignity of the human body. And then at the end of time, what is God going to do? He's not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake the first time around. He's going to renew it and restore it, creating a new heavens and a new earth. So from the very beginning, the Apostles' Creed has affirmed the resurrection of the body. This is an amazingly high view of the material world. Mm. There's nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. And that's what we should, we should be communicating to people. We should be so on fire, so excited, so grateful, so full of joy that we have such a wonderful message. That it should just be you know, that should be the tone that we approach other people with. Mm. Of excitement and joy and an understanding of the body. But you you also mentioned that a lot of these students agreed with you, you know, spirit good, body bad, which means our churches aren't teaching this this idea. How do we help our churches see the need to recover a proper theology of the body? Now that is a very good question. Um, because one of the things I hear, again, from students, you know, especially graduate students who are older and who've tried to work within their churches, one of the things I hear most frequently is my, my pastors are not behind this. You know, they'll sometimes agree for me to teach a class, but even then, they sometimes don't even agree to teach the class. I had uh, one of my graduate students was a, in charge of the women's ministry at a fairly large church here in Houston, and she wanted to teach my book, Love Thy Body. She had an uphill battle. It's like, oh, no, oh, no, those are, those are controversial issues. You know, uh, we, we, we don't want to touch those. <laughs> um, she, she gradually won. She's a persistent person. But um, or another case was I, I visited a, with a friend. I visited a um, Lutheran church here in Houston. And he, my friend was introducing me to the pastor. And he said, oh, you probably have her book, Total Truth, on your on your bookshelf somewhere and he looked at her and said no I don't read apologetics <laughs> um, so one of the most important things is one of those uh, maybe maybe uh, the, the other side the positive side is my books are being taught in many seminaries 
so that future future pastors, um, I, I do hear from seminarians a lot who are reading my books. Um, so we we may see some movement in the future, but you know you know, Travis, the most important thing is when somebody in their own family mm. uh, is having difficulties. One of my graduate students. Um, the reason he was in my class is because his daughter had, had announced to him that um, she was a lesbian. She was attracted to yeah. other girls. And so he came to my class, and for his final project, he wrote a curriculum. He wrote a curriculum that can be used in churches uh, based mm-hmm. on Lovely Body and the other readings in the class. And his, he, he submitted it to his uh, church, and they agreed agreed to run it to, to run a class mm, um that's awesome and they one, one of the pastors was a former seminary dean so he had a pretty high bar to cross mm. <laughs> but you, you know in terms of the quality he had to, he had to be yeah. he had to be good quality and uh, so that that that's what is turning most people around is when somebody in their own family has an issue um in fact speaking of which let me give you one more story. Um, yeah, no, I love this. A, a, a transgender so story. Um, so I, one of the longest anecdotes I tell in Love Thy Body is uh, a young boy who had gender, gender dysphoria from a very young age. Uh, gender dysphoria, true gender dysphoria usually does start very young. Um, before he was even walking, I call him Brandon, not his real name. Mm. Before he was even walking... Uh, his babysitter babysitter said to his mom, he's too good to be a boy, mm. by which she meant, you know, he was sweet and gentle and compliant and the things that we normally associate with girls. In preschool, when his mother picked him up, invariably he was playing with the little girls, not the little boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his, to his parents frequently, weeping and saying, I think the way girls do... I'm interested in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. Mm. And this lasted for years. This was very, it was, it, this is a difficult, true gender dysphoria is a very intractable issue. And by age 14, he was scouring the internet for information on sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, they made sure he knew they loved him just the way he was. Mm. A lot of parents try to push their child into into more, you know, gender conforming behavior. I had a friend when I was in seminary who was a former homosexual. He said, um, when I was young, I liked music and poetry. And my father was baffled and kept trying to toughen me up by mm. pushing me into more traditional masculine things like sports. So Brandon's parents didn't do that. They said, it's perfectly okay for you to be a gentle, sweet, sensitive, relational boy. <laughs> it does not mean you're really a girl. Um, and of course, by the same token, it's perfectly okay for a girl to be gender nonconforming, to be more assertive and rational, take charge. Um, they... They, they even took him through personality tests like the Myers-Briggs test, which mm. show that you could be a male on at either side of the spectrum or you can be a female on either side of the spectrum. And, you know, that the, he doesn't have to have his life ruled by stereotypes. 
you know, the mm. John Wayne masculinity stereotype. Um, in fact, he, in fact, one of the favorite phrases was this: "It's not you that's wrong; it's the stereotypes that are wrong." Mm. They, they said it over and over. They even took him through. By the way, uh, my book Total Truth has a chapter on the history of concepts of masculinity and femininity, and they took him through that and said, "Look, concepts of masculinity change; they're historically contingent. You do not have to let them rule your life." You know, just because all your friends think this way doesn't mean that this is a biblical masculinity. So, um, I, I, and I should say, it, it took a long time, but last time I talked to him, he had, he had in fact, embraced his identity as male. Uh, he was about 20, he was in his early 20s. Um, and here's how he put it. He said, I finally realized that even surgery would not give me what I wanted. It would not make me a girl. Mm which is absolutely true, biologically speaking. There's a famous TED Talk by a cardiologist, um, and, and the, the, main, the, the most famous line from the TED Talk is, um, every cell has a sex. Every mm. cell in your body is different whether you're, if, based on whether you're male or female. She's a cardiologist, and so her concern was that um, symptoms of an impending heart attack are different for men and women. And mm. met, uh, doctors were being trained just to see the male symptoms. And so women were not being treated and they were having heart attacks. So that was her goal. But her point was, you know, uh, every cell, including your heart cells, <laughs> every cell of your body has a sex. And obviously you can't change every cell of your body. So it is truly, it is truly uh, biologically accurate to say uh, even surgery won't give you what you want. Mm. So that was a... Um, it's something that we can be on the lookout in the in our families in our churches is for these gender non-conforming kids because they yeah. are being targeted big time mm -hmm. by transgender activists who are telling them you know if you don't fit these stereotypes you're really the opposite sex and you know kid, kids are young enough that that they they have no defenses against that there's a there was a news story not long ago about a kindergarten, excuse me, first grader, a first grader uh, came home from school and said, my mom, my teacher told me that, you know, just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. Just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. So she said, mommy, what am I? And she literally said, please take me to a doctor so we can find out what I am. And this, uh, the reason it was in the news is because the, the parents were taking the, the school to court for emotional distress for their child, mm. but kids down to first grade and even kindergarten now are being taught a transgender, the transgender ideology. And we really need to fight for these kids. You know, as parents, mm. as in the church, we need to fight for them, uh, especially the more gender non-conforming because they are being targeted. How do we, as time goes on, and we're going to see this, as you mentioned before, even secularists are realizing that the worldview is bankrupt. But that takes time, as you mentioned again with Schaefer, it's a trickle down effect. And it's going to take time to get to the schools and, and, and uh, the courts and everything else. How do we hold on to hope that it's going to be shown to be bankrupt? And how soon do you think that will be? before that really catches on? Yeah. Um, I'll give you good news and bad news. Okay, the bad news is um, 
the Supreme Court has now basically come out on the side of transgenderism. This was what, let me pull up my notes here. This was what, last last June, I think? Yeah, mm-hmm. last June. Um, the Bostock decision basically mm-hmm. said, you know, it's now in the Supreme Court that if you identify as a woman, no matter what your biological sex is, you must be treated as a woman in the workplace. So woman is no longer a biological fact, it's a mental state. And mm. so on the level of, of the Supreme Court now, we have a decision, basically, this is not a question of law, it's a question of philosophy. And yet mm-hmm. they've taken the stance that to be, to be a woman or a man is not an issue of biology, it's a matter of your mental state. And so as a result, uh, so, so that's the bad news, is that we now have a transgender decision on the level of, of the Supreme Court. The good news is uh, the British Supreme Court, they call it the High Court, but it's the equivalent of their Supreme Court, has come out with a decision going the other direction. There's a young mm. woman uh, named Kyra Bell, K-E-I-R-A Bell, Kyra Bell, who went to the largest gender clinic in England called the Tavistock. She was, um, I don't remember, maybe she's about 16. Um, and, and they just you know, fast-tracked her into transitioning, which is pretty common for gender clinics today. If, if you're a parent uh, and you have a kid who's wondering do not uh, about their gender identity, do not send them to a gender clinic. The gender clinics mm. today are all completely activist. I, I, have talked, I had a chance to interview parents for an article mm. I wrote um, for, the, for, the, for the Federalist. Uh, it was really eye-opening because I heard parent after parent tell me, you know, when, when it was happening to them, they did not know yet that you don't take your kid to a gender clinic. They thought, mm-hmm. of course, that's that's where you would go. That's where you get expert opinion. And they really thought that the gender clinic would, would support the parent in saying, no, no, you need to wait. You know, let's find out if you have any underlying issues. You know, psychological issues may be playing a role here. Uh, a study was done not long ago by Brown University professors finding that 63% of girls, this was just girls, um, who claim a transgender identity, 63% had other psychological mental health issues before their gender, di- their gender dysphoria started. Mm. So, so uh, self-harming, uh, autism, autism is the most common, um, anxiety, depression, OCD, Etc. Um, so these are very troubled kids. That's what we need to realize too. I mean, in the church, when we deal with these issues, these are very troubled kids, and we need to treat them very gently. Um, but all, all that to all that background to say that so Kyra Bell um, and the British High Court, she was she was fast tracked into transitioning. You know, puberty blockers, um, cross cross sex hormones, surgery. Etc. And then uh, when she was in her early 20s, she realized she wasn't any happier. She still had the same psychological issues that she'd had from before and that it was it was wrong of the gender clinic to just fast track her into transitioning without ever asking her about any of the underlying psychological issues that she might have. That's just just poor medical care. You know, Mm. doesn't matter what your moral or ideological views are. Good medical care would say we need to look at some of the underlying po- possible psychological mm-hmm. issues here. 
so she took it to court and she won. <laughs> in Britain, no, you cannot uh, give any of the puberty uh, uh, blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgery, you cannot give it to, ch to kids 16 and under mm. without a court order. So, it's astonishing. She's 23 now. Um, and she must have had good lawyers because a 23-year-old going up against the Supreme Court, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's just amazing that she yeah, was able to win this. So, so they're ahead of us now. But it does give us hope. It does mm. give us hope that um, people are starting, people are, to some degree, people are starting to turn around on this issue. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner with them. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. And we're back. This last part of our conversation deals with the Equality Act in the United States and what it means to us. She also discusses the importance of language and how it can be co-opted to promote ideas antithetical to our faith. She concludes our conversation by exhorting us to love God's creation, provides us then with an example of true life and heart change, and gives real hope. Happy listening. With the Equality Act, what, what, what are your thoughts on how we go about and deal with that? Because, I mean, it's something that we're all dealing with, and I don't think many Christians are still aware of the ramifications that it involves and what it could mean for us should it go through. Although there are some that have been quite vocal and brought attention to it to the point where you're seeing the administration trying to even work with Christians, trying to figure out how to rearticulate the uh, the act itself. But what are your thoughts and how we go about dealing with it? First of all, help people understand quickly what it is and why it's so dangerous for us, but how also we should be responding and reacting to it. Yeah, it's pretty extreme. The Equality Act is very extreme. And um, I don't have a list at my fingertips right now, but I'll try to remember. Um, no limitations on abortion up to the point of birth. So it, it gets rid of all uh, abortion, statewide abortion limits, like right, any sort of restrictions on the state level, totally wipes them out. Totally wipes out um, any restrictions on uh, you know hiring people who um, you know might disagree with your mission, like a Christian who doesn't want to hire homosexuals or transgender people. Um, it wipes out all protections for Christians, uh, it, it will affect um, 
adoption agencies. Right now, there are adoption agencies who who you know will give children only to uh, two parent families or only to Christians. Um, it will. Um, oh yeah, of It'll course. Change the locker room too. Locker, yeah, locker rooms, schools, and locker rooms. Obviously, no restrictions on uh, who can, wh- whether you're a boy or a girl, which locker room you use. It's and there. And, but here's the most important thing: there are no religious exemptions up until now. Christian Christian ministries, churches, schools, universities have had some way of being able to maintain their own integrity, the integrity of their own mission by saying, you know, this is our mission. We have a religious right. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, Mm -hmm. to give it a name, has has protected Christians from some laws that uh, would otherwise force them to do things that they don't agree with. This, the Equality Act specifically says you cannot use the religion, religious restoration. Wait, what did I just say? <laughs> religious Freedom Restoration Act. Yes, you, yes, yes. RIFRA. Yes. It's, it's called RIFRA. Um, because, the, because, of course, RIFRA has, has been used to protect Christian organizations from having to hire homosexual to trans, trans, transgender people. Um, and so as a result, they got ahead of us and said, nope, can't use it. Cannot use RIFRA. So there are no religious exemptions. I don't think Christians have any clue what this is going to mean. Mm. All Christian schools, ministries, churches, universities are going to be, you know, open. Uh, and, and here's the thing you need to know too. First of all, you need to know that this it's up against only one vote in the Senate. It's mm. one vote away from being passed. It's already passed the House, the U.S. House, and it is only one vote from passing in the U.S. Senate. Number one and number two. Uh, there's a big push now just for um, PR purposes of, of getting it uh, pa- getting it passed in June because June is Pride Month. And so they would like to accomplish this in, in June. Um, so it's really under the gun right now. And there are, uh, Schumer is trying to get on a, vo- a voice vote, which, you know, it means you we walk out on the Senate floor and you just ask for a voice vote. And so there are Christian organizations like Liberty Council that are saying, we, we've got somebody every day on the Senate floor so that he can't do that. Uh, it's, it's that close. And and you're right. They're trying to, they're trying to come up with some sort of a compromise, but you know, the comp- so that, so that that one final vote, they'll get, they want that one final vote. Mm. But it's amazing that it got this far. It, it just shows how far our, our nation has gone. They, they have been able to sell it, even for people who are more politically conservative, morally conservative, by saying it's just equality. Everyone's for equality. Mm. You know, that, That's for the language, the right? Language, we're getting it back to the, the language. Again, the language. Mm-hmm. Mm. Final thoughts. Like one of the segments we like to do right at the end here is here's your water bottle for the week. As people try to water their faith, something that they can... Uh, sip on to really think about what's the one thought that you have for our listeners that they can just hold on to and nourish their faith this week? You know, since the book Love Their Body is about the body, take a moment and meditate on verses like offer up your body as a living sacrifice. You know, there, there are verses that say, you know, it, you cannot hold on to the the stereotype of spirit good, body bad, and then say, offer up your body 
as a living sacrifice. So why would God want your body? <laughs> you know, you it, it, meditate on verses like that because that will help you to realize that God cares about your body. I was asked in a recent interview. <laughs> I was asking a recent interview in India, by the way. This was an mm. uh, interview, a podcast from India, which was fascinating. And the podcast host asked, Sam Harris, you know Sam Harris, the yeah. well-known atheist. Sam Harris says, why do you think, you know, why should Christians think that the God of the universe cares what they do, what people do in their bedroom? You know, doesn't he have better things to do? You know, the almighty, eternal God of the universe. Why should he care? And I just smiled and said, I'm so glad he cares. God cares about every detail of my life. God cares mm. about my, you know, all the details of my physical body and what I do with my body. I said, this is not a negative. This is a positive that mm. Christians say. What Christians say that God cares about what you do with your body. In fact, it shows that Sam Harris doesn't care that his worldview, his secular materialist worldview, does not give him grounds for caring about what we do with our body. It actually it shows that he does not have a worldview sufficient to give dignity and value and significance to what we do with our bodies. So, um, again, that shows up that, that the Christian view is much more positive than any secular view. And I'll end with a final story that also came out after Love Thy Body, so it's 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 not in there. Um, there was a woman who passed as a male for 10 years. Um, she transitioned to male and successfully passed as a man for 10 years. And um, then she started visiting a Bible study and became a Christian. But she thought she could still live as a man. You know, she, she still thought that, would, that was fine. And, and the, the, the irony is, here's how she put it. She said, I aspired to be a real man of God. <laughs> and, and then one day when she was praying, she seemed to hear God say to her, you cannot love me and yet reject my creation. Mm. And she knew what that meant. She knew it meant you can't reject your body. Your, my, your body is part of my creation. You're rejecting your female body you know, and living as a man. You cannot claim to love me and yet reject my creation. So I, I love that as a final, a final word is that, you know, may, may God give us the grace not only to love him, but also to love his creation. Amen and amen. So I, I would recommend people get the book. It's a great book to have on your bookshelf. It's a great reference to have. It's an encouragement. Uh, like I said before, I love how you structured it. I love how you walked through all of the different issues and how you, you take kind of a philosophical look of exploring the worldview and then really drawing it out from a biblical perspective on how it's just not coherent, but yet you provide positive examples of people that have been changed and that have been transformed by that. So I would recommend all of our listeners to go out, order the book, Love Thy Body, and how can they follow you so that they can know more about what you are doing? Well, I am pretty active on Facebook and Twitter and interact with people quite a bit there. I have a website, um, but it's not as active, but you can go check it out if you'd like, nancypiercy.com, just nancypiercy.com. 
um, you, you can see what my earlier books are. And um, oh, yeah, I do have a Twitter feed there, so you can keep up to some degree there. But anyway, best, the best way is just to say hi on Facebook. All right. Well, Nancy, I want to thank you for coming on Apollo Swattered. Thank you so much for having me. It was delightful talking with you. I want to thank Nancy for coming on the show and discussing her book because her book is really phenomenal and filled with hope. It's informative and it's readable. There's no way escaping these issues. And as Christ followers, we must make sure that we are shaped by the Bible and not what our world says or the people around us feel. However, as we defend our faith, and we are defending our faith because we are defending God's design and purpose for the body, we must make sure that we're doing so with gentleness and respect, always ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. We are not simply just trying to get people to change their behavior or become more moral. No, that's not what's at stake here. We're trying to show them Christ and the hope that he gives He is our creator, our sustainer, and our friend. And when we go against his design for our bodies, we will experience incredible sorrow. But when we yield to him, surrender to him, we find hope and peace. (laughs) And I want to let you know that if you enjoyed this content, if you enjoy these conversations, would you join us? Because there are some incredible things happening here. We are in our Ready to Fly giving campaign where we're looking for 80 new watering partners before the end of the year. And here's an incentive. For those new partners, we will be giving you an Apollos Water Drop logo t-shirt. Sign up and someone from our team will be in contact with you to get your information. And for those who have already partnered with us, we couldn't be where we are today without you. We're on the runway, but need your help to get into the air. If If we are helping you so that you are able to water your world better then please consider partnering with us. We'd love to have more people grow and connecting with Apollo Swattered. If you've been impacted while listening to this podcast, would you screenshot the podcast, text it to a friend, share it on your stories, or simply share it directly from your podcast platform? Subscribing and leaving a review also puts it out there to more people. Remember, we also have content on Instagram, Facebook, and our website that's shareable. And together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encouragement around the world and watch people grow. And last of all, here's a big shout out to our team that makes this dream happen. Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.